0: Welcome to our series, Life in the Time of Coronavirus. Today, I'm really delighted to be in dialogue with Lonnie Bunch III. Lonnie is the Secretary of the Smithsonian, having taken on this position in June 2019. As secretary, oversees 19 museums, 21 libraries, even the National Zoo, and numerous research centers, education units, etc. It's an enormous job, and I'm really awe-inspired, Lonnie, even to hear about the range of your responsibilities. (laughs) Um, Previously, Lonnie was the founding director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, and we're going to talk quite a bit about that, as well as about his broader remit at the Smithsonian at the moment. When he started as director in July 2005, he had one staff member, no collections, no funding, and no site for the museum. And today the museum has welcomed more than six million visitors since it opened in September 2016, and has compiled a collection of 40,000 objects from nothing. Lonnie's also a widely published author. He's a historian by training, and he's written on topics that range from black military experience, the American presidency, and all black towns in the American West, to diversity in museum management, and the impact of funding and politics on American museums. His most recent book, A Fool's Errand, creating the National Museum of African American History and Culture in the Age of Bush, Obama, and Trump, chronicles the making of the museum. Lonnie, thank you so much for giving uh, of your time, making time to be in this conversation. I know there must be so many demands on you at the moment, especially as we are living in such an extraordinarily intense moment. And we're really grateful to have you here with us today.
1: I am so honored, one, just to be able to spend time with you, Um, You know, my connections to UCL, without UCL, I wouldn't have finished my latest book. So I'll do anything you ask.
0: Well, that is um, really, really so generous and lovely of you. And I want to start really with a very broad question. You're a historian. You've written a lot, as I say, about different historical periods and particularly about the African-American experience, the history of African-American culture and political struggle. Looking at the period that we're living through at the moment, Lonnie, how would you characterize this period? How do you think it will go down in history?
1: Well, on the one hand, it's important for people to realize that we've been here before in the States. We've been here where broken black bodies have created a movement of people to transform a nation. We've been here before when people have taken to the streets, they've marched, they've protested, and we've been here before because we have a real division in this country between those that want to see a future-oriented country and those that want to look back to a time that where racism was more dominant. I think what's important, though, historians will look at this as different in several ways. First of all, the impact of social media. Uh, what you now have is this becomes a global movement. To see the diverse people in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, but also London and Paris and Amsterdam really tells me that this is a, one of the first times where an issue that usually belongs to one community— is now owned by all of us. And I think that's a positive thing in terms of trying to affect change. I think the other positive is that historians are going to see that suddenly people who have never had these conversations, police chiefs, police officers, corporate leaders, are really trying to say, we have got to not let this die down. We've got to use this for change. And I guess the the last thing that makes me optimistic is that You're beginning to see some local political leadership recognizing that it's both a national and a local issue. But I tell you, the thing that concerns me, and I think historians will write about, is that in the United States, during the 1960s, when there was such change, new legislation to protect the voting rights, et cetera, as soon as the late 60s came, many Republicans turned to law and order. They said the country was out of control. And that turned people's attention away from social justice to crime, which led to mass incarceration. And I'm hearing similar conversations now about the cities out of control. So I do have a worry that historians may end up saying this is like the late 1960s. There were great energy. There was great movement forward. But the fear of, you know, lack of control, the need for law and order gets in the way of social justice.
0: And do you think that the conflation or the conjunction of living in a time both of extreme racial injustice and violence against minority communities and against Black people in particular, the conjunction of that and coronavirus and what it has unleashed in relation to inequality and the disproportionate suffering of people from minority communities produces a particular kind of Perfect storm, where, uh, you know, what's going on there with that conjunction, would you say?
1: You're absolutely right. It is a perfect storm. On the one hand, it is devastating to see the impact on these minority communities. You know, the overwhelming number of people who die are from these communities, the people who have longer term impact. Um, if, even after they survive, are from these communities. It really illuminates really the sort of health inequities, inequalities of this country. What it really does is let people realize that racism, that discrimination is broader than just the vote or segregation. It really is in all aspects. And I think that what's, what is powerful about that is that many people can no longer deny that inequalities exist that they see it in the healthcare, they see it in, in the way that people are dealt with the police. So in some ways, this is a horrible, tragic time. But I think out of that tragedy comes more clarity, comes more people who understand that this is something that they've got to address. And I think that the other thing that's coming out of it is you see people saying, you know what? This is not just about police. This is about an overall system that prevents people from finding a freer and a fairer America. And I think people recognizing that it's a broad issue can lead to kind of transformative change.
0: Do you think people are ready to confront those incredibly difficult truths, both about the inequalities and the violence that characterize the contemporary and also about historical injustice and the, and the blemish, really, that stains America's past?
1: I think that more people are ready than ever before. I think this movement, especially the social media, the fact that it's being covered in a way that no other movement has been covered, I think that's getting more people involved. But candidly, I think there'll always be a significant portion of the United States who believes this is overstated, who believes that this is not a challenge, who believes that it's really a criminal element. Rather than recognizing how it shapes us all. And I'll tell you, as an African American male, it really hurt me when I thought about George Floyd, because I realized I had been thrown over po- cars by policemen. I realized as a historian, there'd been so many, you know, broken black bodies, broken by a lynching rob, broken by bullets, and now a knee. And I realized that I too am George Floyd that if I had turned left instead of right, could have been me. And so I think that what you're seeing now is both a political movement, but also people are taking it very personal and suddenly realizing that there for the grace of God goes them. And so I think that that does give it some energy. How long? I'm not sure because the other worry is that unlike the civil rights movement in the 1960s, there was strategic thinking. Um, that they knew they wanted to do a march to acquire X or to get the visibility of Y. And I worry a little bit about the lack of a coherent strategy today. And that's my biggest concern that we do all this, but we're not sure what is really going to happen as a result of the marches.
0: And what do you think that cultural institutions can do? I mean, I imagine that you're in quite a difficult position in the sense that there you are in an extremely powerful position as the secretary of one of the, you know, major national institutions obviously very tied up with the current administration and with the current establishment. So how do you work with your resources and with your institution to make it speak to this moment at the same time as navigating a very delicate situation in relation to your employers, in effect?
1: Well, what I've done is said that the Smithsonian, like all cultural institutions, need to be collaborators in this moment, that this is not a time to sit by the sideline. This is not a time to say, woe is me because of financial impacts. It's really a time for institutions like the Smithsonian to show, here's how we're of value, not just about yesterday, but about today and tomorrow. So what I've done is said, first of all, let's make sure that we get all of our scholarship and our historical resources out digitally. So people can understand that this is a historical, this has been shaped by historical processes, and, and it's not something that just happened today. But then what I've said is that the Smithsonian has scholars that explore the African-American experience, Latino, gender. So I said, we should come together and say, help the country to grapple with race. So what we've done is we were able to get some wonderful financial support from places like Bank of America, and we created an initiative called Race Community and Our Shared Future, which is really about recognizing that the Smithsonian can get people of different political views to come together. So we want to have sort of virtual town halls around the country that are driven by local issues to help people sort of understand the history of Minneapolis and race or the history of St. Louis and race, but also then to bring people together to use our resources to say, how can we move forward as a nation? I think the most important thing is that people trust cultural institutions. People trust the Smithsonian. Let us not abuse that trust, but let us use that trust to make a country better. And if we don't do that, then what we are are wonderful places of nostalgia and entertainment rather than places of real scholarship and helping the public in ways that they desperately need.
0: But that involves asking very difficult questions about contested histories, doesn't it? In the sense that if you're going to avoid those nostalgic narratives and myth-making that is so prevalent in the culture and in the political uh, climate, um, you are going to have to ask very difficult questions, some of which there are no answers to. And, you know, to, in especially also in this time where the humanities are under attack, where experts and scholars are under attack. We see that in this country too, as well as in the United States. You know, speaking for the humanities and for the way that the humanities makes meaning out of a social life and out of our shared pasts and puts pressure on people in power, asking asking those difficult questions, this puts one in a very awkward relationship, doesn't it, to the truths that are being, or so-called truths that are being exposed.
1: Oh, I think that's right. I think that in some ways, this is the moment for the humanities, because what you're really looking at is if you could help the publics, be they in the UK or the United States, embrace ambiguity, understand that there aren't simple answers to complex questions. And I think that's what the humanities do. And if we can do that, then we can help the public grapple with nuance and complexity. Because I think one of the moments that's so powerful now is that there is attention being paid to history people are asking questions. What do Confederate monuments really mean? How do you memorialize someone who was a slave owner? Questions that you and I have asked for years, but suddenly it's being asked at many different places. And I think that is a role for the humanities to step up. I do think it is challenging because you have to in, let's say, a place like the Smithsonian that's part of the federal government, you've also got to build allies and you've got to do it carefully. And you've got to frame it that you've got to help people understand that it's not about being pro this or anti that. It's about trying to use the resources we have to help a country come to grips with one of the great crises that it's facing. And so we will get beat up, I get beat up, I get criticized, and at some point they might run me out. But the reality is, I'd rather that be a place that is doing everything it can to help people understand the nuance and complexity of this, rather than some place that simply is there to say, when this is over, come back and see us.
0: Well, what's really interesting also in listening to what you're saying, Lonnie, is thinking about what the role of the curatorial is in relation to the particular complexities of history and experience that you're referring to. So one's not just talking about some abstract telling of the past. You're talking about the way in which past experience is embedded in material objects. And I've been so struck in reading your book about setting up the Museum of African-American History and Culture and generally in talking with you about how you talk about the way in which the artifacts and the things and the stories of the past help us to understand the complexity of historical experience. And I wonder if you'd say a little bit about what you think the role of museums is in relation to the very material culture that it protects and stores and, you know, and, and presents.
1: I think that you've put your finger on what is the key issue here. The key issue for me is how do you use artifacts to tell a narrative? How do you use artifacts to basically reduce grand historical moments to human scale so that people can understand how change happened in the past? And that in essence, my hope is that as we tell powerful stories using artifacts, what it'll do is it'll create new generations of people who want to transform a nation, new generations of activists who recognize when they come to the National Museum of African American History and Culture and see material that people use to end slavery or to understand the sense of loss and pain and danger that was part of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 1960s, I want people to recognize that individuals can make fundamental change in a country when they are strategic and when they look for collaborations and allies. Also, I think that what artifacts do, what material culture does, is it makes something accessible. To many of the public. One of the great joys of material culture is watching people who don't know each other come around an artifact or through an exhibition and find themselves talking to each other, grappling with what this means. Candidly, one of my biggest fears about this pandemic is what does social distancing do to the building of community that we do when you have in museums? Are people going to want? to talk to people who they don't know. And so really trying to think about how do you build community in a time of a pandemic is really one of the challenges because I believe so powerfully in how the artifacts really move people.
0: Well, we'll talk in a minute, I think, about whether we think it's possible to build virtual communities and whether in any way those are adequate to the intensity of the time and to the kind of affect that you have talked about that is so, uh, you know, attached to the experience of being in the museum and relating to particular objects and artifacts. I was very struck by the accounts that you give, for example, of bringing the watchtower from Angola, from the prison, and putting that in the museum, or bringing the artifacts from the Mozambican slave ship that you excavated off the coast of Cape Town, and you know what it is to bring those objects into the museum, and what it is, as you say, to have people experience those there. But I'm thinking, too, of the way in which those are contested objects. For your law and order protagonists, the tower at Angola might have been a very effective watch tower to incarcerate people who are seen to be a danger to society. For other visitors to the museum and for the narrative that you're particularly interested in cultivating around it, it signifies the castral nature of American society and its effect on black people and on African-American communities. So it's also interesting to see the way in which objects themselves do not necessarily have one fixed narrative.
1: I agree. And I think the real challenge is, you know, when I started in museums, people always said, oh, the objects speak for themselves. No, they don't. And that what I wanted when I took the Angola Tower, right, Angola is one of the oldest prisons in the United States. It's a prison to this day that was built on an old slave plantation. And to this day, it's got the highest percentage of people who will never leave Angola. So it's a horrible place, but I took the guard tower in part because, one, it was such a large, significant object, but I wanted to say that to help people understand the prison industrial system that after slavery, it is really the prison system that is a way that the South gets free labor. It's a way that you control these newly freed African-American. So what I wanted to do was to use something large that the public would say, what is that? And allow me to frame it in a way that says, yes, there were people who broke the law, but the overwhelming percentage were people whose only crime was being black.
0: Do you think that from your own perspective then, having been so involved with a history of a particular community and your extraordinary achievement of founding and directing and setting up this Museum of African American History and Culture, do you think that you become perceived then within the wider culture and in your position as Secretary as necessarily speaking from one subject position only in the way that people are seen to be racialized and then embody difference, so that a white person is seen to occupy the space of the, you know, the central, I don't know, um, uh, you know, signifying subject that's not marked by difference, but the way in which women say or uh, people of color then become reduced to being spokespeople for that particular identity. To what extent is that something you have to navigate in your position?
1: I think I've had to navigate that my entire career. Right. I think so. Part of the challenge is while I've written so much about issues of race, I've written about the American presidency. I mean, I've tried to be a good scholar. So part of what you're trying to do is to bring not just a perspective of who you are or your community, but the other research that you've done to shape this. But I also recognize what it symbolically means when I walk into a room as secretary that there are people who automatically think, well, he's gonna take this particular point of view. Um, he is the he is the one that, that is leading his community. But on the other hand, what I do is remember that I'm secretary means I'm secretary of everything. So that I really make sure that people respect not just what I bring as a scholar, but what the title means and what power that gives me to help make change. I think that as you know, whether it's issues of race or gender, it's always an additional burden. I know we're saying a negative burden, but it's always an additional burden. It's an always additional weight that you carry with you because you're also doing whatever you're doing as an individual. You also realize people are both looking at you based on who you are, But also you recognize that your job, in part, is to make sure the next generation of women or African-Americans don't do the struggles you've had and that you want to open those doors. So in some ways, I'm very cognizant of being African-American, but also recognizing that in many ways, I'm a quintessential American.
0: But you're also having to deal now with the age of backlash. And, uh, you know, (laughs) that is a a huge burden. And I was struck again um, in in thinking with you in reading your book where the subtitle says, um, you know, it's about setting up a museum in the age of Bush, Obama and Trump. And you talk about navigating uh, what it is to live under those very, very different regimes and presidencies. And I'm struck by what it is now to be Involved in this particular moment, going back to what we were saying right at the beginning, uh, the conjunction of coronavirus on the one hand and its disproportionate effect on minority communities, as well as Black Lives Matter, the death of George Floyd, and the incredible energy and anger and pain that we see um, around us. I mean, you are having to navigate this moment in the time of backlash. And you know What
1: kind of a challenge is that? <laughs> oh, you know what I think? I think that part of what I've learned as a museum director is that you've got to be political in order to get your work done in order to survive. So it meant that I had to recognize every step, what is it going to mean from different points of view within the political spectrum. I also had to find ways to build allies on both sides of the aisle, both Republican and Democrat. And then I had to realize that the other thing that is key in a moment of backlash is to be able to get your voice out. So to make sure that I've developed relationships with the media and done a better job of social media so that in essence, what you realize is that you're going to have to sort of engage with the debates, with the people who are critical of you if you want to get your work done. And that just is, as much as I would love to say being smart is enough, it isn't. That you've got to be political, especially in any kind of museum leadership. But what you hope is that even curators have a political sense. Never let politics trump scholarship. But understanding um, what may happen when you throw that rock into the water, how do you protect yourself? How do you protect the institution?
0: And how do you retain your optimism? I mean, I was struck when you talked about the African American Museum as being created in an environment and I think you used the phrase ripe with optimism. And of course, it it's hard to be optimistic at this moment when we're surrounded by this this terrible plague as well as this racialized violence so and i was struck again you know was, uh, there was an interview i think with michelle obama uh, who talked about suffering from low grade depression at this time i'm not sure whether you've seen it but i think i saw it in the newspaper today or yesterday talking about ongoing racial injustice and the pandemic producing an environment which induces a kind of low grade depression and i wondered how you how you retain optimism in relation to this onslaught
1: well um I'm optimistic at 8 in the morning. At 8 at night, I'm less so. Uh, I think that part of it is, for me, it's everything about my life has been steeped in history. So when I look at the evolution of the African-American experience, and even though I can say the pain, the discrimination is still very strong— It's different, that there's been movements of success, movements of change. I look at John Lewis, you know, the recent congressman who's a friend who died recently, and I look at here's a man who risked his life, but who worked every day with a sense that you can make a country better. So for me, I take optimism from the changes that African-Americans have made in this country. I would argue that many of the moments when the United States lives up to its stated ideals, it's because... People of color are pushing. And so that optimism is something that changed me. And the best example I will give you is when I was a kid and 10, 11, 12 and wanted to go to history museums when we traveled around the country, my father would never take me because we were not allowed to go in. And I didn't know that. He just would always make up an excuse. And one day we were driving to Washington, D.C., and he pulled in in front of the Smithsonian and he said, here's a place where you can go, understand your history, your science, and not worry about the color of your skin. So the notion for me of being old enough to remember when I couldn't go in places, and now I run the Smithsonian, that tells me that you've got to be hopeful because change is possible. It doesn't mean that you've got to the promised land, but it means that with strategy, with a willingness to sacrifice, with understanding that there is loss, with a, the need to confront, you can begin to change a country. So that's what keeps me hopeful.
0: And to what extent do you think that the symbolic insignia of past enslavement and tyranny and racialized injustice need to be dislodged and moved in order to allow something new to happen i mean the statue wars that we've been talking about you mentioned earlier the confederate statues the debates around names of football teams and mascots etc how do you how do you relate to that whole plethora of material culture which still encodes racial injustice
1: see i think that often people hear me talk about changing monuments pruning making changes and they say i ah, you're you're erasing history no what i think we're doing is finally finding a truer history a more accurate history. So I'm a big believer in moving, removing many statues, but I also hope that they're not only just pulled down, that they're part of a dialogue within local communities, because part of what we're seeing through this moment is an understanding of the past, an understanding that in the United States, the Confederacy lost the war, but they won the peace. And all those statues are really symbols of white supremacy, symbols to say we will not change a nation to be more racially fair. Um, and so taking those down as part of a conversation to understand what they symbolize is really important. I think symbols are so powerful, and so therefore it is important to recognize that all symbols were not meant to be permanent. So there's nothing wrong with no longer naming football teams after native peoples. There's nothing wrong with sort of debating, if you remove statues, what do you do? Do you destroy them? Do you put them in parks like they have in Budapest? Do museums collect them? I'm, for example, to ask the Smithsonian to make sure that we collected at least one Confederate monument. Because, you know, 30 years from now, if you want to tell this moment, a Confederate monument is a great way to do it. So I believe strongly that it's a good thing for a country to have a debate around these symbols because they're not just symbols. They're really speaking to our national identity.
0: Well, it's interesting. You could, you, one could argue that the liveliest debate around history that we've had in a long time has been precipitated by these events. Uh, on the contrary, rather than repressing history, it's produced a historical consciousness.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think for the first time, you're really seeing people ask questions, reading history. And I've always argued that historians now and need to take advantage of this. And be much more in the public eye, being writing op-eds, being in television. And so I think this is a moment where a country, especially America, which is a country that often forgets, here's an opportunity to help it remember.
0: So that's really interesting in thinking about your own formation, Lonnie, and the way in which you yourself have worked across national boundaries. You're obviously very invested in the in the American narrative and in your responsibility in relation to a particular national story. But I know you've had experience working in South Africa and working elsewhere. I'm struck by the relationship between the Rhodes Must Fall movement and the Black Lives Matter movement in relation to, to symbolic materials like statues, etc. But also the history of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the relationship to the past, you know, in terms of narrative, etc. Could you just say something about your own experience in thinking in a cross-national and an international way, in particular in relation to South Africa?
1: I think I have been unbelievably fortunate in my career as a trained historian of America, but so much of my career led me outside of the United States. You know, I worked for three years in Japan, did a lot of work in China, but it really was South Africa that was transformative to me. I started going to South Africa before the fall of apartheid, and I remember thinking, this is a nation that's going to implode, and it's going to be bloody, and it's going to be horrible. And then as South Africa became the new South Africa, and I saw a real appreciation for history, not just as a discipline, but as a way to understand who this nation was and what it can become. And in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission work just transformed my thinking to recognize that speaking truth about the past, but using that truth to help redefine who you are today was really something that just clarified how I wanted to use history. So I've always thought that because I spent time in the U.K. looking at issues of devolution, what does being British mean, times in South Africa, wrestling with these questions in Germany and other places, has really changed me. And I think I would not be the person I am. I would not be asking the questions I ask without my time, in especially in South Africa. And so every time I go to South Africa, as you know, when we were there together, um, I'm always moved by what I learn. I'm always moved by the centrality of history as a factor in who South Africa is today. And sometimes I wish America had that same embrace of the contemporary resonance of the past that I found in South Africa.
0: It's so interesting because the peripatetic nature of objects is one of the ways in which you tell that story. And, I, you know, going back to the wreck of the slave ship, the Mozambican slave ship, wreck of Cape Town, which the artefacts from which you managed to bring back to the museum, to the National Museum for African-American History and Culture, which is such an interesting way of creating the connection uh, for African-American experience to Africa and the painful past. But you end your book with a very forward-looking, affirmative story about Nigerian cultural leader from the Yoruba cultural leader who comes to the museum and talks about contemporary rich symbols of African life. So I find this very interesting interweaving of the, the harrowing past of the enslaved and their material culture, and the ongoing richness of African culture as something that informs the contemporary, a really interesting dynamic in your way of thinking curatorially.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I have really been made so much better and smarter by listening to How Nigerians are grappling with what was their involvement in the slave trade? What are the connections between Africa and America, Africa and the UK? Um, So that just, I find it fascinating. And I think where I have evolved over years is I think that I was once somebody who was so steeped in American history, you know, who had limited understanding of the history of outside the United States. But through the last 20 years, Uh, maybe maybe now 25, I've really been changed by being able to understand where there are commonalities. I've understood a lot about what is American exceptionalism and what is not, and I've understood an awful lot about what these stories are really about is the battle to redefine national identity, the battle to find fairness in nations, and I felt that history was my tool To contribute to that struggle. And so every time I learn something from another country, I am just fascinated by it and I try to bring it to the way I think about the United States. So
0: that's really fascinating. It's a way of thinking about a national story without a parochial story i thinking about the entanglement of histories.
1: Exactly. I mean, one of the things that when we were trying to build the National Museum of African American History and Culture, I really fought hard to say that this has to be a place that is really tied to international issues. That it can't just be worried about what's within the context of the United States, both in terms of how global considerations have shaped America, shaped the African-American experience, and then the other side is how the African-American experience has shaped global culture. And so I recognized that it was interesting to think about what does national mean in a transnational age. And so in some ways, that sense of globalization is really what excites me about the Smithsonian. Because it is a place that looks inward, but also has tentacles all around the world. And um, so so I continue to learn every day.
0: Never has that been more important than now in the age of America first, and in the particular kind of Trump era jingoism and, you know, self-regarding nationalist rhetoric that one hears. I mean, to think about what you do in an institution like that, so embedded in, you know, in the circuits of power in Washington in a way that can be genuinely international, here, here lies the challenge.
1: I think that's a really big challenge. And part of the way I deal with it is say that the international issues are crucial to who we are as Americans. And so that gives me some opportunity to sort of grapple with these things but you're right. It is a, um, it's a tightrope. Sometimes you get the support that you need and you can go farther than you think. Other times you've got to think very creatively about how do I protect the institution. My belief is as secretary, my job is to make sure the institution is better off when I leave than when I came. But that also means that it has to be more comfortable taking risks. It has to be more comfortable being a place that's contemporary, and it has to be more comfortable in building political allies, recognizing that, as I said earlier, it's not enough to be smart. You've got to be smart politically. And I think that if we can do that, we can still do most of the work we want to accomplish.
0: Well, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege, Lonnie, speaking to you. I see you have, you have a huge challenge here and one which we are all going to watch with great interest to see how, how you navigate this moment and how you navigate it materially. Because, you know, one of your gifts has been to find extraordinary objects through which to tell very complex stories. So you now have this incredible array of institutions. under your uh, powerful uh, directorship. And, and it's going to be really fascinating to see how, how this moment pans out. Thank you so much.
1: Well, you are, you are so kind to me and I am so appreciative. And I think that, you know, the challenge for me is that How do you lead during a pandemic, right? You have this vision of all these other things you want to do, but, you know, job one is keeping people safe, making decisions about the institution. And so I think that part of what I'm trying to do is use this moment, not just to adjust to the pandemic, but to use this moment to ask fundamental questions that'll make the Smithsonian nimbler, make it more effective in terms of our revenue sources, so that even though this is not the plan I had. I have to use this to sort of try to make sure that we, one, always serve the public with our resources, and two, that we think of ways to be the Smithsonian that's more efficient, more effective, and more global. And so I thank you for this. Thank you for listening. Do send us your feedback and proposals at a.renchat at ucl.ac.uk and find more talk pieces in the Institute for Advanced Studies website or your podcasts app. Music is by Small House in the BBC Sound Archive. Communications are by Patricia Mascarelli-Jombart. Production and edition are by me, Albert rinchat and executive producer, Stomach Carr. Look for yourselves and others as you see.